she married young when she was 18 years old. She went to Sears and Roebuck when they first opened in the, would have been in the forties to get a job. And the doctor told her, lady, you're not going to work for Sears. You're supposed to be dead. Nobody can be walking around with blood pressure like you have. You should be dead. She was 18. Welcome to the Journey Podcast, a place where ordinary people share their encounters with an extraordinary God. We hope you are encouraged to hear of how God moves in ordinary lives around the world, and we pray that you will embrace the power of your own story. Hey friends, welcome back to the Journey Podcast. I have a super special story to share with you today. If you've been around the Journey Podcast for a while, I would love to hear from you with a star rating where you listen to podcasts, and you could even go the extra mile and write a review. This is how other people can find these great, encouraging stories as well. Today's story is one that I have known my whole life. My mom has joined us today to share my grandmother's story. Her name is Anita, and she died in 1961. My mom was only six years old. And I never met her, but I was named after her. And because of that, I have always felt a powerful connection to her. Her story is one of great tragedy after great tragedy. She had a really, really hard life, but she came to know the Lord and her faith was solid, so solid that almost 60 years after her death, we are still talking about her faith. I only hope that I can leave that kind of legacy. I've named my daughter after her, and she feels the same connection. So pull up a chair and join us today as my mom shares the story of my grandmother, Anita. Hey, Mama. I'm so glad that you are with us today on the Journey Podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, sweet Carrie, there's nothing I'd rather do than spend some time talking to you. Thanks for having me. Can you introduce yourself quickly to our audience about a little bit about you and where you live? My name is Nanette. I go by Nan Lloyd. I live in Montgomery, Alabama. I'm married to Bob. I'm a CPA in private practice, and I have two beautiful daughters, two stepchildren, and eight wonderful grandchildren. I have um, looked forward to this day for years, actually. Your story, Mama, is so powerful to me, and it's always been powerful, and you've been open to share your story with me as I've been growing up and learning about life and to have an opportunity to not only document it for myself and for my children and generations to come, but also for other people to hear what your life has looked like and how the Lord has proven to be faithful through many seasons. So I'm excited that you are willing to to share it with us today. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Where do you feel like your story starts? My story, sweet Carrie, starts a long time before me. And I think that's probably true of everybody, but mine in a special way. And that's where I want to start. I want to start with my mother. Her name was Anita, and her name is spelled A-N-N-E-T-T-A, just like your name, just like Anna's name. She was the youngest of seven children, 
and her mother died when she was three years old. It was a hard world in, in the 20s and 30s in the South. And I don't know much about what her upbringing was like, but I do know that her older siblings adored her. And she had six older siblings that felt like each one of them felt like they raised her. But she had one sister in particular that was very close to me that was, um, she was not the oldest, she was the second oldest. Her name was Zelda and she adored my mother. And so they coaxed her through life and somewhere along the line, a lot of her story, I just know from things that they've told me. And a lot of it, I know from things that she said, and some of it may even be conclusions I've come to, but what, what I, what I know about her was that she married young when she was 18 years old. She went to Sears and Roebuck when they first opened in the, would have been in the forties to get a job. And the doctor told her, lady, you're not going to work for Sears. You're supposed to be dead. Nobody can be walking around with blood pressure like you have. You should be dead. She was 18. Who knows if she'd ever been to the doctor. They didn't go to doctors for anal checkups like we did what we do now. And so that started her on a journey. And it wasn't long after that that she married. I don't even know his name. I do know that she had two babies with him and both were stillborn. Both were boys and they're buried in Atlanta. But he beat her up enough that in the 40s she got a divorce. It didn't happen in the 40s. In the 40s, you were man not like today when you can get tired of being married and decide it's time to end it. But in the 40s, you said till death was part and that's what you did. So I know that that about her, what I remember about her and what I know about her from that is that she was spunky enough personality that she was going to stand up for herself and she was going to be nobody's doormat. And she was smart and headstrong and vocal and opinionated and tough. So somewhere after that, she went looking for a room after World War II started. So it would have been in the late forties. She was looking for a boarding house room and she came across an ad in the paper that Gilmer Chatham had put in the paper because her husband was off to war. And so she came and looked at the room and rented the room from her. And Gilmer had two little boys, Bob and Doug, who were nine and 11 at the time. And she just fell in love with those little boys. And you can see why that was, that spoke to her heart. So she lived with them. The war is over. Hugh Chatham comes home and Gilmer's brother comes home and he meets Anita and they fell in love and they got married. And that's my dad. His name was Gerald. The most important thing in the world, or I would like to know, I'd like to go back and ask her when she met Jesus. I don't know the answer to that. If I had to guess, I would think that it might've been a combination of the horror that she went through with her first marriage and the depths of that pain and suffering and shame and moving in with Gilmer Chatham because Gilmer Chatham was a very, very strong and bold believer. And I feel sure she brought my mother to Christ, but I don't know that. Nobody's ever told me that and I don't have anybody to ask that now, but I bet you that's the way it happened. And then when she married my daddy, my daddy was a believer. He was a, um, interesting sort. He, so I feel like suffered from lifelong depression. And because of that, he, he could um, be vocal 
and she was vocal. And so some of my childhood memories of them are laying in the back seat of the car while we were driving between Nashville and Atlanta to go home to visit family and them yelling at each other, just yelling at each other. And I pretend to be asleep because I didn't want to get in the middle of it, you know. But it didn't horrify me. It wasn't bad. It was just what they did. And so because they were both strong tempered people and both believe they were right. I'm going to prove to you that I'm right. And so that's just kind of the way they were. She wanted to have a baby more than anything in the world. She didn't have any trouble getting pregnant, but she had trouble staying pregnant. And in the 50s, there were two drugs that were widely used for anti-abortion drugs. One was called Sobestrol, that's what she took. And one was thalidomide. Well, thalidomide babies were often born with no arms or no legs or physical deformities. She didn't take thalidomide. Yes, I'm grateful for that. She took cholesterol. She didn't take it with me, but on her, after her sixth miscarriage, she took it with the next pregnancy. And that was a little boy. She carried him till about seven and a half months, and he was stillborn. And so everybody said to her, doctors, doctors, everybody said, don't, don't do it again. With your blood pressure, she had what was called chronic malignant hypertension which is different than regular high blood pressure. And it's and in those days, even phenobarbital, which is the standard treatment for high blood pressure, wasn't around. So she was, I don't know what they treated her with, but she struggled. So she, um, she said, no, I'm gonna do it one more time. And I'm not going to bed and I'm not taking the drugs. I'll be careful, I'll be smart, but God's gonna give me this baby. So she did. And on 1954, I was born. Very, very early, premature baby, in an age when premature babies didn't live, there were no NICUs, that, um, there was none of that. So I stayed in the hospital several months. I weighed two pounds. Nobody thought I'd live. But I laugh and tell you, Carrie, that's one of God's best miracles is that he can turn a little tiny premature baby into a fat old lady. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> he can do anything. So I did fine. I was great. And we lived next door to Gilmore and Hugh in a house in Atlanta. When I was three, we moved to Nashville. When I was five, we moved to Birmingham. And by that time, it was obvious that mother was declining, that her body had been ravaged by that the high blood pressure for so many years. It was her kidneys were shutting down and she was not, she knew she was not going to survive. And so they went to Vanderbilt University and the doctors there proposed to do an experimental surgery where they clipped the nerves to her spine so that her blood pressure would drop. And she was terrified of that. I can remember at five years old, walking into the bathroom and she was kneeling, leaning over the toilet, which is not unusual, but she wasn't there because she was sick. She was there because that was her prayer place. And I walked in there and heard her say, Jesus, I don't want to do this. I'm scared to do it and I'm scared to not to, and you're going to have to give me the answer and you're going to have to take care of me and just tell me what to do. So she had the surgery and she did fine through it. And what, what that meant for her was that she couldn't get out of bed without wrapping her legs because if she did, she just plummeted. Her blood pressure dropped so fast when she stood up that her body just crashed and she'd pass out. So every morning she had to go to this big ritual of wrapping her legs and ace bandages. And I remember, I remember all that. And she began to get afraid about what would happen 
to me if she died suddenly and we were there alone because my daddy traveled a lot, be sold and serviced x-ray machines. So she would take me, when we moved to Birmingham, she would take me, she took me to the houses around us and knocked on the door and she said, my name is Nita. This is my daughter, Nanette. Can I please have your phone number? Can I please teach her your phone number? So in case I die, she'll have somebody to call. I can't imagine what those neighbors thought about that. But I don't ever remember anybody saying, no, you can't. And as it turned out, that it didn't need to happen anyway. But that was her preventative, her way to protect me. By the time I started school in first grade in 1960, she started talking about her death, even to me at six years old. She talked to me really plainly all the time. She told me from the beginning and from the time that I could understand words, she would say to me, Nanette, Jesus gave you life. That's a powerful message for a little girl. But when you hear it over and over and over, she knew that the legacy that she had to instill in me was that my life was directly related to Jesus, came directly from Jesus. Now, every life comes from Jesus. We know that. But I wasn't supposed to exist. And she wanted me to know that. And she didn't know, she knew I couldn't understand deep theology, but I could understand that sentence. So when she started thinking about her death, she decided that she wanted to see me settled in school. And she wanted to die in her father's house in Roswell, Georgia. So at some level during that period, she, the spirit must have let her know that it was imminent and that she needed to be prepared because she obviously was preparing her thoughts and preparing me for that. But the idea of dying in her father's house just wasn't a possibility because they still lived, Papa and his second wife, Sally, still lived in uh, an old duplex in Roswell. And they rented out the other half and they lived in this little bitty tiny one bedroom duplex. And that's where she grew up with seven kids. I've often wondered if uh, they had the whole house then, but I don't know, never thought to ask anybody. So there was no bed, there was nowhere for us to stay, there was nowhere for us to go. We couldn't go there for a weekend, there was just one new room. On Father's Day in 1961, all of the siblings decided to give Papa a sofa bed for the living room. He needed a new sofa and they decided they would give him a sofa bed. So as soon as I finished first grade, the day after first grade was over, Daddy loaded us up and he took us to Roswell to go spend the night with her daddy for the first time ever. We got there on a Friday morning and I had cousins that live in an adjoining yard and we had a big time playing outside and in the woods and in the grass and the bugs and all those things that little kids do. And so we went to bed Friday night, Saturday morning, I got up and got all ready to go outside and play again with my cousins. And she said, no, wait, I'm gonna make pancakes. Just sit here a minute, let me make pancakes. So I did. And I ate my pancakes, and that was a real treat, you know. And so then I went outside to play. And she went and laid down to take a nap. And somewhere not too long after that, Papa Hammond came screaming out the back door saying, Nita's dead, Nita's dead. So the the events of the rest of that day are just a blur. But that was a life-pivoting, changing moment for me. My dad did okay, but he couldn't, he didn't know what to do with a little six-year-old girl when he traveled, so he started immediately looking for somebody to marry. He didn't know what to do. His mother came to live with us in Birmingham for a couple of years, and then he finally got married again, and he married my stepmother, Charlotte. So her 
prayer. She had two prayers. That she would die in her father's house and that you would be settled in school. And this was days after you finished first grade. And she died in her father's house. Mm-hmm. I remember you telling me that story. I was nine years old. The first time you told me that story in its entirety. And that story has become a concrete block in the foundation of my faith. God heard her. He heard what she asked. And he granted her those things. And as a little kid, I remember thinking, if he can do that for her, then he can hear me too. Me too, Carrie. I've carried that as my my knowledge, my deep depth all of my life. And not just that story, but the whole story about I want a baby. And the story about I'm going to have the guts to leave a man who beats me up with almost killed her when people didn't do that. Because God rescued her from those things and granted those wishes and heard her plea, she was 36 years old. She could have been saying, why me? I finally get a baby. Why are you going to let take her away? I never heard anything like that from her. Now, that doesn't mean she didn't feel it. It doesn't mean she didn't say it. But she was so strong in her faith that I don't believe it. I believe that she knew that she had been blessed and that she had been loved and that, that where she was going was to be with Jesus and that was going to make it okay. I believe at 36, she was that strong in her faith. And so living with somebody like that and hearing that kind of attitude all the time, I have people ask me, when did you first come to know Jesus? And I can't honestly say there was a time I ever didn't know Jesus. I can say that relationship has grown and developed and deepened significantly over the years and through some seasons in my life. But I didn't have a moment where I said, oh, you must be real. He's always been real to me. Now, I didn't always listen to him. And I haven't always wanted to listen to him. But after daddy remarried and we're plugging along and I did fine. And, and I think about that sometimes. I did amazingly well for a child whose mother died. I know that I have some scars because of that. If you know someone whose mother has not been around, your mother is the rock of the family. Your, the mother, your mother is the person who has your back. And loves you no matter what and you know it if you have a good loving mother you know that about your mother and I didn't have that and I was hungry for somebody to love me like that but I didn't come out of it I don't think I didn't cry all the time I wasn't rebellious I didn't we just I just did it yeah I dreamed about her when I was a child I used to dream that I was climbing a rope to heaven and I kept climbing hard enough, I'd get there and I'd see her. She'd be at the top of the rope. But daddy, my daddy remarried two years later and three years later. And I had a family and life went on and I got braces and I took piano lessons and I went to school and did all the things that we were, that you do as a kid. And then at 20 years old, somebody came along and made me feel loved like that. Okay, I'm going to hit the pause button right there because next week my mom is going to be back to share her story and I promise you don't want to miss it. My mom's story is full of twists and turns that you will not see coming, but the Lord has been faithful through it all. 
I hope you connected with my grandmother Anita today. I know her as a feisty, powerful woman who was not going to take no for an answer. And she was going to trust her God for big, impossible things. And he came through. He gave her that baby that she wanted so badly. And he granted her two big requests about her death. She wanted my mother to be settled in school, and she wanted to die in her father's house. He heard her prayer, and he gave it to her. If he can hear her prayers, he can hear yours too. I'm so glad that you joined us today on the Journey Podcast. I hope you have been encouraged to dig deep in your faith and trust the God of the universe to do the impossible. Remember, we are just ordinary people encountering an extraordinary God, and your story has great power too. We'll see you next time, friends.